This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Good evening and thanks for your company. I'm Jake Thrupp, filling in again for Alan Jones. Alan is away in Canberra, where he attended the funeral of David Barnett. My thoughts are with Prue Goward and her family on this difficult and sad day. But I'm excited to be back, and thank you to all the viewers for your supportive feedback from the other night. It meant a great deal to me. Another big show for you tonight will cross to Daniel Wilde at the Institute of Public Affairs, where we will discuss their latest report into Labor's climate change bill. Legislating emissions reduction targets now means a wave of green lawfare will be unleashed. So, good luck building anything in Australia. Environmental legal activism mixed with yahoos gluing themselves to main roads at peak hour, well, it's enough to drive any sane business person to invest their money elsewhere. The IPA predicts that this climate change bill will cancel 175,000 jobs and would economically damage Australia to the tune of $100 billion. We are a trillion dollars in debt, so the question must be asked, can we really afford this? I'll speak to Daniel soon about all that. I'll also be joined by Dave Sharma, the former federal member for Wentworth, but more importantly, he is totally knowledgeable in the foreign policy field. Bob Carr appointed Dave Sharma as the Australian ambassador to Israel at the age of 37. And often on this show, I know Alan does, but we talk about the growing international instability. There's a geriatric president in the White House who falls off bicycles, an expansionist China, a military coup in Myanmar, Sri Lanka is virtually bankrupt thanks to the corrupt Rajapaksas. Then there's Putin in Ukraine and the rocket man in North Korea firing missiles every other day. The latest now is the Solomon Islands Prime Minister, Sogavare, not only best mates with the Chinese, but now trying to delay the election. Barnaby Joyce said it months ago, and I agree with him. The Solomon Islands is our little Cuba. There's a strong likelihood that there could be a Chinese military base less than 2,000 kilometres from the Queensland coast. An issue like this should keep Penny Wong up at night. And, of course, Fred Paul will take you into the next hour, 
after me, where he'll speak with Professor David Flint and Nick Cater from the Menzies Research Centre. So there's plenty on right here on ADH TV, your nightly home of robust opinions and news analysis. Well, much has been said about the revelations that the former Prime Minister Scott Morrison secretly swore himself into five separate senior ministries. Mr Morrison, in his explanation, blinked and balked at almost every question, not understanding why the public would be outraged by these revelations. It raises the question, how out of touch is this bloke? Mr Morrison fails to understand that the public object to this sort of secrecy. Don't Australians deserve to know who is responsible for which ministry? Or is this just another case of a power-hungry politician treating the everyday voter as a mushroom, kept in the dark and fed manure? How dare we question him? How dare someone in public life who enjoys a taxpayer-funded salary be questioned? It is good, though, to see that the bewilderment is not just coming from the Labor side, but also from those in the Liberal ranks. The Gold Coast MP Karen Andrews, who was the Home Affairs Minister, is calling for Scott Morrison to resign from Parliament. She's 100% correct. Honestly, why is he still there? Andrews was never alerted by the former Prime Minister that he had sworn himself in as a co-minister for Home Affairs. The loyal, some would argue too loyal, Deputy and Treasurer Josh Frydenberg was never made aware of the arrangements as well. So that means that for 12 months before the election, Australia had two treasurers. Not even the Treasurer Secretary knew. But what about Scott Morrison making himself Resources Minister and using his powers to override the actual Minister, Keith Pitt, to veto gas exploration off the New South Wales coast? This is Mugabe stuff. It's now clear as day that Mr Morrison did what he wanted, when he wanted, and had no issues with breaking convention. And this was the same political side who were calling Victorian Premier Dan Andrews Dictator Dan. So after knowing what we know now, what then is Scott Morrison? And now, showcasing his signature stubbornness and do-what-I-want-when-I-want attitude, he insisted at his press conference that he would not be bullied by the media. Far out. Eat some humble pie for once in your life. I'm sorry that transparency and openness, especially when it comes to our traditions and institutions, is inconvenient for you, Mr Morrison. But all this, in my opinion, is just another chapter in what was a long and shameful episode in Australian history where politicians did as they pleased and freedoms and democracy were trashed. The past three years was a time in our history when politicians became dictatorial, expanded their powers, didn't tell the public the truth and refused to treat us as adults. Self-responsibility was thrown out the door. For the first time in our history, we became a papers-carrying country and Scott Morrison's Liberal Party didn't lift a finger to defend basic freedoms, proving that rarely do elites surrender power that they have seized. This was a time, remember, when even the New South Wales Liberal government slapped regional communities with mask mandates and limited visitors to a home to five people. There was zero justification for all this. That's before we even go to what people in Greater Sydney and Melbourne suffered. They were treated as second-class citizens in their own country. During this time when people were financially hurting, our politicians never surrendered a single dollar. 
From day one, it was a coup d'etat against our rights. That's why Scott Morrison's secret behaviour is so appalling, because it proved our greatest fears, that unrestrained power in Australia exists and that politicians don't feel the need to keep the public in the loop. Mr Morrison, Kim Jong-un would be proud of you. Well, there's no doubt in my mind that the world is becoming a more unstable place, a more dangerous place. A big part of this, I believe, is that Western foreign policy has gone soft. Any country which is a global threat or their leaders will no longer sit back and listen to preachy Western leaders. For about 15 years after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, America had the strength to impose liberal values against tyrants. Those values include democracy, open markets, human rights, and the rule of law. But now, when you throw in a weak president of the United States, an expansionist China under Xi Jinping, and then European countries unable to deter Vladimir Putin, it is a recipe for instability. My next guest is the former Liberal member for Wentworth, Dave Sharma. He won the seat at the 2019 federal election, but fell victim to a Till Independent. As I said to Dave the other day, the public will soon wake up to the Tills, especially once their communities realise they can't deliver a single thing by sitting on the crossbench. Or that one federal seat in one country with a population of 25 million can't actually do much about the global climate change issue. It's Zali Stegall all over again, just another bench warmer. But with all that said, Dave Sharma was a former Australian ambassador to Israel. I believe he was appointed to the role by Bob Carr, making him at age 37, one of Australia's youngest ambassadors. He's also served as a legal advisor to Alexander Downer and was appointed to the Australian embassy in Washington. On top of that, and there's heaps, he held appointments at the Australian High Commission to Papua New Guinea. Between 2010 and 2012, he was the head of the International Division in the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet, advising Prime Minister Julia Gillard during G20 summits. So long story short, Dave Sharma is excellently credentialed when it comes to discussing the global challenges our country faces today. I'm pleased to say he joins me. Dave, thanks for your time. Good evening, Jake. It's a pleasure to join you this evening. Look, firstly, Dave, a bit of a long one, but I just want to raise the Solomon Islands with you as there was a big song and dance prior to the election about China wanting to build a military base in the Solomon Islands. At this time, our foreign, policy, uh, our foreign minister was uh, missing in action, which was no surprise there. But anyhow, once we expressed our displeasure for this arrangement, Prime Minister Sogavare delivered a parliamentary speech suggesting that the Pacific nation was being threatened with invasion. Sogavare, who has no issues cozying up to the Chinese, is now believed to be trying to delay the 2023 elections. So, Dave, uh, Albo hugs uh, Sogavare at the Pacific Islands Forum. Why doesn't he then pick up the phone and tell him democracy delayed is democracy denied? Well, that's exactly the message that we should be conveying to them, uh, Jake. I mean, Sogavare, Australia's got a long and quite a chequered history with him. 
Uh, he was in uh, opposition at the time that we sent the regional assistance mission to the Solomon Islands. This is the military and peacekeeping mission that basically rescued Solomon Islands from a state of civil war. And as an opposition politician at the time, Sogavari opposed that intervention uh, very strenuously. Uh, I think the fruits of that intervention were successful. They were shown to be right. But um, he does have a real chip on his shoulder about Australia and what he always sees as our neo-colonialist attitude. Um, there are other politicians there, though, in the Solomon Islands, ones who are much friendlier to Australia, much friendlier to democracy, much uh, more aligned behind liberal values. And those are the sorts of politicians we need to be working with to strengthen Solomon Islands' democracy and make sure that we remain their strategic partner. But if this power grab takes place, the Solomon Islands could be a shop front for the CCP, meaning there'd be military presence less than 2,000 kilometres from the Queensland coast. Already China has sent in 22 police vehicles, 30 motorcycles, two police water cannons, eight police drones, you get the drill. Uh, they're being totally funded by China. So, um, Dave, in all seriousness, uh, how threatening is this to Australia? Look, it's, uh, if China establishes a military presence or a military foothold or even the ability to rotate vessels and personnel through any of these um, islands in the southwest Pacific, through Melanesia, through Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu or Fiji, uh, that's a huge threat to Australia. I mean, this is the Japanese strategy from the Second World War. What it would do is interrupt our maritime supply and communication lines, not only to North Asia, but to the United States as well. And you'll recall, I mean, some of the, the, the biggest maritime and naval battles of the Second World War, the Battle of the Coral Sea and, and others were about, uh, the Battle of Midway, were about making sure that Japanese uh, did not establish a presence on these islands in a way that would basically strangle Australia. So whether we like it or not, whether we say it or not, Australia effectively needs to operate a Monroe Doctrine in the Southwest Pacific. That means that we should not be allowing any other major external power to establish a strategic foothold there. Yeah, absolutely. And look, speaking of these threats, you wrote a great piece in the Australian newspaper yesterday about China's ongoing aggression, especially after this Nancy Pelosi visit to Taiwan. As you wrote, quote, when China last conducted exercises of this intensity across the Taiwan Strait in 1995, the US military sent an aircraft carrier battle group through the Taiwan Strait. This time, no such de decisive response will be forthcoming, unquote. So I guess my question is this. Was the whole Pelosi visit worth it? Well, in my mind, no. I think um, taking a real politic view of it, uh, I think it's, it's set Taiwan back. Uh, it was clear that the Chinese were going to need to be seen to respond in some way to her visit. Um, the way they did so, though, militarily and by crossing the, the median line between Taiwan and the mainland uh, and, you know, firing missiles over Taiwan into seas belonging to Japan, all these sorts of things, what they've done effectively is obliterate the median line as the buffer zone between Taiwan and China and normalise high-intensity military operations across the Taiwan Strait. And what that means is it's, it's going to put a huge strain on Taiwanese defence forces and the civilian population, and it means that the time we have for any genuine invasion is going to be a whole lot shorter. Um, 
the US administration knew going into this that you know, the Chinese response will be some variant of this to the Pelosi visit. Nancy Pelosi uh, presumably knew. Um, and I think absent, as I said, a credible military response, and look, I, I know these things are easy to, you know, coach from the armchair, it's difficult to execute in practice, but uh, China has basically taken military ground or taken strategic position as a result of this visit in a way that has set back Taiwan. Well, that's right. I think the visit should have been thought through beforehand. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, Joe Biden has a role to play in all of this because we saw how he bungled the withdrawal uh, in Afghanistan. He kept telling everyone in the US elections how awesome he was at uh, uh, diplomacy. And yet I don't think the world has been more dangerous. We've seen the collapse of Kabul, Sri Lanka on its knees, a military coup in Myanmar, now another, it seems, in the Solomons, Putin's invasion of Ukraine, North Korea doing missile tests, the list goes on and on. Dave, I can't help but think Western foreign policy is suffering under a Biden administration. Your thoughts? Look, I think the rot goes back some way. If you want to, um, if you want to catalogue the original sin here, I think it was Obama's uh, failure to enforce a red line against Syria for the use of chemical weapons. Yeah, um, absolutely. And that not only emboldened Syrians to continue to use chemical weapons, this is back in uh, 2013, you recall, but it emboldened countries like Russia and emboldened countries like China to realise that US threats could be, were sometimes bluff. Um, they could be called out, they could be withstood, they could be defied. Um, and those lessons have uh, continued. And I think um, Trump, certainly shook things up because he was so unpredictable. And there's certainly some good parts to his presidency, I think some some regrettable parts, but he was an uncertain calculation for foreign actors. Um, Biden is a more predictable, you know, Obama variant. And I think it means that the US words carry less weight because they know there's less willingness to back them up with force. And I think, you know, that's a long-term problem. Certainly it characterises the Biden administration, but it's also going to be something any future US administration has to grapple with. So what then do you think um, uh, of when Biden visited Saudi Arabia? I mean, when he fist pumped Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince there, despite the bloke being re held responsible for the murder of a Washington Post columnist, uh, he seems to be the mouse that roars. Well, I think that the, the, the problem there was the stridency of his remarks during the campaign. I mean, Look, let's not mince words. The Saudis are an unsavoury regime. They run a repressive kingdom. Uh, you know, women's rights are not respected. Human rights are not respected. But they have always been a strategic partner in the Middle East, going back to the, you know, um, Roosevelt's days and the and the dying days of the Second World War. Um, you know, the Middle East is a pretty nasty and unfriendly place, and you work with the partners you've got. Uh, I think Biden made a mistake by trashing the Saudis during his election campaign, he was always going to have to make up with them. He was always going to have to find a way to talk with them. They're the biggest oil producer in the world. They're central to stability in the Middle East. Um, and he's had to, lot of, had to lose a lot of face in order to do that. And that's one of the problems when you let domestic politics guide foreign policy. Uh, you're often um, shown to be inconsistent or, or unfaithful to your principles. And lastly, uh, what is next for Dave Sharma? We all know you were part of a Liberal Party whereby the leader barely promoted talent. So in my mind, you were underutilised and 
considering everything that we're facing today uh, in the international sphere. So will there be a comeback, do you think? Look, I'm not ruling it out, uh, Jake. I'm certainly interested in public service still and interesting in, in playing a role in the public debate, and I'll continue to offer my views and thoughts because, look, as you said in your lead-in, I do think the world and Australia faces a more uncertain and a more challenging time, and I sometimes uh, despair a little at the level of appreciation of that in Australia. I think we're slowly getting wake-up calls with things like the war in Ukraine, with Chinese operations against Taiwan, with Solomon Islands. Um, but we need to get really serious about some of these challenges facing Australia. And whatever I can do to make sure we sit up and pay attention, I'll do. If there's a if there's an elected position that allows me to do this, yes, but I'm also happy to do it from the sidelines. Well, that's very encouraging to hear. Definitely keep writing. Uh, we love to uh, read your insights. And we love that you are out there informing Australians of those challenges. Dave, thanks for joining me on the show. It was great to hear your views. Thanks for having me on, Jake. That's Dave Sharma, the former federal Liberal member for Wentworth and former Australian ambassador to Israel. So I spoke the other night about Labor's upcoming Jobs and Skills Summit. Again, why on earth is a Jobs and Skills Summit needed next month when there is a treasurer who has been shadow treasurer for the past three years, I've got no idea. Are you telling me that he has no answers when it comes to the economic hardship Australians face today? And with the ACTU's Sally McMenus attending, who is arguing that wages must keep up with inflation and social benefits and income support must be fully and promptly indexed to the actual consumer prices paid by recipients, you wouldn't consider it in a month of Sundays it would only lead to further inflation. But from one lazy economic policy to the next, I see the big Australia advocates are back. This time, wanting to lift Australia's intake of migrants to a record 200,000 arrivals a year. Labor don't have a mandate for this. They say it's to combat a drastic shortage of workers, and yes, they're half right. For the past two or so years, we were hit hard and people coming into this country were virtually nil. So that has caused worker shortages, no doubt about that. But the flip side of the worker shortage coin is this. The generous welfare system in this country is being abused by many who are just too lazy to go to work. And the working from home laptop class now can't be fussed to return to the office. I've got a hunch that that's contributing to the nationwide worker shortage as well. Of course, this government proposal of wanting to allow an annual migration intake of 200,000 people was supported by the Business Council of Australia. They are disciples of a big Australia. You know the drill. More people equals more consuming, equals more money for businesses and means more tax revenue, etc. So apparently, this proposal by the Labor government will be discussed at the Jobs and Skills Summit next month. Skills and Training Minister Brendan O'Connor said he wanted to make it easier for the skills and qualifications of migrants to be recognised. Oh, I see. Is near enough good enough now? Is it too much to ask for a national debate on population policy before we just implement these half-baked ideas? We need a plan to accommodate such growth. Remember, Australia's population reached 25 million people in 2018, more than two decades faster than predicted. Without the appropriate planning or building of new infrastructure, 
How do we provide more water and energy? And what about the congestion it will cause on our roads? What about housing affordability? Politicians continue to fail to see that supply is the issue and continue to whack regulations on people trying to build homes and other projects. So what does a, a ballooning population mean for you? It means politicians like Brendan O'Connor are asking Australians to live off less. The funny thing about such a proposal, are you listening, Sally McManus? High rates of immigration actually reduces wage growth. I think it's time that Australia has an honest debate about population growth and migration because the urban and environmental pressures are simply too big to ignore. Well, each Thursday, Alan crosses to Daniel Wilde. He's the Deputy Executive Director at the Institute of Public Affairs. I know viewers love to hear what he's got to say. I said this on Monday night with Senator Matt Kenavan, and that is, I believe, Australians after this winter are starting to wake up to the energy crisis our nation faces. That is, we continued, if we continue to go down this path where we prematurely turn off coal-fired power without any real alternative, the power blackouts will be non-stop and Australians will soon learn that this isn't sustainable. Renewable energy sounds marvellous, especially to those who dream about this green utopia where you wake up and the sun is shining on the solar panels and the wind turbines are turning in the fields. But the reality is, this cannot power Australia. Relying on such sketchy, feel-good energy sources will not power Australian households and industry. We are a country that refuses to reach our full potential. Australia could have the cheapest power in the world. We could pipe water to irrigate regional towns and create new cities. We could have high-speed rail. We could grow and build things here. But instead, we have the likes of Chris Bowen and Adam Bant, B1 and B2, stifling progress and wanting us to be cave dwellers. The Institute of Public Affairs have now released a report which shows that Labor's climate change bill risks cancelling 175,000 jobs and would economically damage Australia to the tune of $100 billion. Good one, Labor. Well, let's go to Daniel Wilde, where he'll speak further to this report. Daniel, thanks for joining me on the show. Great to be with you as always, Jake. So, look, Daniel, the IPA have released two reports identifying how Labor's climate change bill will impact our economy. What were the main findings there? Well, the main findings were that the climate change bill will greatly expand the scope for green group activism in courts uh, through taking major resources projects like coal, gas, infrastructure projects into the legal system through what's called uh, legal activism. And the reason for that is because under the current law, when a minister is approving a project, they have to take into account what is called, called quote-unquote, relevant considerations. Now, relevant considerations is a very vague term. And what this legislation does is by embedding net zero into the law of the land, it means that ministers will have to take into account how a major project affects Australia's net zero emissions target. Now, quite simply, that means that any major project which emits uh, carbon will be in the ambit of the legal 
system. Now, what we know is that Green groups have already made their intention clear. Uh, only a few weeks ago, uh, Green groups wrote to the Federal Environment Minister uh, requesting that she reconsider 19 projects that had already been approved by previous governments. And the value of those projects is $100 billion, 175,000 jobs concentrated in regional Australia. And these are just the first cabs off the rank for what will be significant litigation against critical resources projects. Well, I think this is just a metaphor, isn't it, of how reckless this climate change religion has now become. We've got a Labor Party, it seems, which doesn't care about blue-collar jobs or creating new jobs. Daniel, doesn't this prove that Labor is now a job-slashing political party? Well, I think you're right, Jake. And you touched on something very important, which is who is actually speaking up for mainstream Australians? It used to be the Labor Party was meant to be the party of the workers and the working class, but not anymore whether it's on climate change, whether it's on uh, the size of government, more regulation, the centralisation of bureaucracy. Uh, no one is speaking out for, for workers. Now, the other issue here is that the coalition uh, so far appears unwilling to reach out into the outer suburbs and the regions to give more of a voice to those values because they're still concerned with these inner city teal seats. And so there's a significant minority of our population, anywhere from 20 to 30%, who are really without any accurate or meaningful political representation. And we saw that with the massive drop to the primary vote to both Coalition and Labor at the last election. So what we really need is for either Labor or the Coalition to return to being a party of the mainstream rather than chasing these teal-green inner-city uh, votes. Well, that's right. I mean, this IPA research shows, as you just mentioned, that uh, regional communities as well will cop the most damage yet the Federal National Party under David Littleproud's leadership are fully committed to net zero. I mean, really? Yeah, you're right, Jake. The real concern here is that 14 of those 19 projects that I mentioned are located in uh, regional Australia, with most of them either in central and north Queensland or the Hunter Valley. And this builds on previous research we've undertaken of the impact of net zero where we found that a typical worker in regional Australia was over three times to have their job put at risk by the policy of net zero compared with a typical worker in the inner cities. Now, quite simply, that's because those in the regions are more likely to work in those emitting sectors that are the target of the policy of net zero. But it's the inner city elite, the affluent teal green voters, that are the ones that are pushing for the policy of net zero, along with big corporations, the major media organisations, academia, most of the governing institutions of our society are pushing for a policy. It's not going to affect them. They will be fine, just like with lockdowns. It didn't affect them, but it will affect mainstream working class Australians in the regions and outer suburbs. And as you rightly identify, there is no political party standing up for these Australians, especially on the issue of net zero emissions. And David Littleproud, I mean, he should know better because he's from a state where the whole Adani coal mine uh, happened and was delayed. And basically that's because of, as you say, green lawfare, green activism, green tape. Daniel, who will stand up to green tape? Will Can we trust that Peter Dutton will come out? He's from Queensland as well, so he knows all about uh, green tape and green lawfare. Will Peter Dutton be the one to, to, to make a move on this? 
Look, I'm confident that Peter Dutton understands the issues and there's no doubt that he has a lot of consideration of regional Australia and the importance of the resources sector to the future of our economy. So I, I think he fully understands the issues. Uh, what we really need is political leadership, you know, to speak out on these issues and to actually debate the costs. You know, don't forget, we haven't had a debate in Australia about the policy of net zero because both parties went to the 2022 election with a commitment to do net zero by yeah, 2050. Right. Just like now, how yes, we don't I have a debate there about different... nuclear energy. Nuclear right. energy. And, yeah. and this is nuclear energy. And we didn't have a debate about uh, government response to COVID. Uh, it seems that in Australia today, we don't debate the big issues in a way that we used to. And Australians have not had the opportunity to adjudicate on the policy of net zero emissions because they haven't been asked. And I reckon the reason why the political parties don't want to ask them whether they want net zero is because Australians will give the answer that the political class does not want to hear. That's what happened in 2013. They backed in Abbott to get rid of the carbon tax. In 2019, they supported the coalition in opposition to Labor's climate policy. But at 2022, Australians simply were not given a choice. Now, look, I just want to get your thoughts about Scott Morrison and how he secretly appointed, appointed himself to all these portfolios. Daniel, how severe is this kind of secrecy and trashing of convention? And doesn't this just cement in our minds that after what we've seen in the past three years, that politicians are just drunk on power? Well, it's a very important issue and it goes beyond just Scott Morrison, the person. To me, it goes to the entire lack of transparency around how governments managed COVID. There was very little transparency or accountability, uh, a significant outsourcing of power and autonomy to bureaucracies that the Australian people had very little idea of what was happening and how that power was being uh, used. And Scott Morrison's secret decision to take on all these portfolios, I think go, goes to all of those issues around transparency. The thing that's really interesting to me is that the only time that Morrison used the powers that he took on had actually nothing to do with COVID. It was to do with a major gas project off the New South Wales coast called the PEP11 uh, project, which was a major uh, gas project. And he used his powers to get rid of that project, to cancel that project's licence, even though we know that Keith Pitt, who was Resources Minister at the time, was supportive of that process. And we know that Morrison made that move, not for economic or environmental reasons, but for political reasons, because he thought it would help um, the inner city Liberals in Sydney. Now, they ended up losing their seats anyway, but the fact that he used that power to get rid of a major gas project in the middle of an energy crisis, purely for political reasons, represents a significant challenge to every norm in our democracy. So considering, um, considering with what he did to Keith Pitt, does that mean that cabinet government in Australia is dead? I don't think it's dead, but I think it's being challenged. And um, it's, it's a big issue in terms of the autonomy and power taken on by a few individuals within government. I certainly hope it's not dead. And it's important to have cabinet government to ensure that there's good process. Absolutely. We have to have good policy. Absolutely. But to get good policy, you need to have debate. You need to have consideration of the relevant issues. You need to have transparency. That is why we have cabinet government. And it's such a, a strong form of government that has lasted many, many years around different parts of the world. So I don't think it's dead, but it is being challenged. So just before you go then, just still on this uh, issue, uh, the Governor-General, David Hurley, has he got a bit to an answer for here? 
I mean, he is supposed to keep a check on unrestrained power, is he not? He is. Look, I think there's an argument that, technically speaking, he, he acted within the bounds of his constitutional authority. So, look, my view, I know there's different views on this. I'm not sure whether um, he acted, you know, in an unlawful manner. Did he act in an unethical manner? I think probably yes, along with the Prime Minister. Uh, both of them share responsibility uh, for what has happened. Yeah, look, I just think Liberals now more than ever must stand up and conserve our institutions and protect our democracy, which is under threat by those on the left. And here's Scott Morrison doing whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and is never held to account. But anyhow, we watch on with interest. Uh, Daniel, thanks for your time. It was great to chat to you. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me again. That's Daniel Wild, the Deputy Executive Director at the Institute of Public Affairs. And before Fred Paul takes you into the next hour, there's no doubt we lost Tony Abbott from public life too soon. Remember, back in 2013, Abbott took a whopping 17 seats off the Labor Party on a proud anti-carbon tax, anti-illegal boat arrivals platform, giving the coalition the strongest mandate it's had since Howard beat Keating in 1996 and Fraser beat Whitlam in 1975. Mr Abbott understands that the Liberal Party is full of former political staffers insulated from life in the real world. He knows that as a political philosophy, the if you can't beat them, join them mentality is a recipe for defeat. But most importantly, however, Abbott is equipped, unlike Anthony Albanese and Malcolm Turnbull, to take on the big issues that we face as a nation. His op-ed today in the Australian newspaper demonstrates my point. Tony Abbott quoted Senator and former General Jim Mullen, who believes, quote, Beijing is considering a Pearl Harbor-style sneak attack using its rocket force to destroy all the US bases and all the carrier strike groups in the Western Pacific, unquote. In response to Mullen's prediction, Abbott laments that Washington, led by the geriatric Joe Biden and his vice president Kamala Harris, is, quote, focused on correcting perceived racial injustice, even though minorities have never had a fairer go, and combating what it calls a climate emergency, even though there's a looming strategic emergency that could kill millions and impoverish billions far more surely and far more quickly than a couple of degrees of global warming a few decades hence, unquote. He asks, quote, should cutting emissions remain the world's highest priority when it has the practical effect of making the democracies relatively weaker and di dictatorships relatively stronger, unquote. He's spot on. At the moment, we have Labor telling us we must power our country with Chinese-made solar panels and wind turbines made in factories powered by Beijing's fleet of a thousand plus coal-fired power plants. How smart are we? Not. We sell the world's best iron ore and coal to China for cheap power and cheap steel, the key imp imports used in their weapons manufacturing industries that pump out a new warship and warplane every week. Meanwhile, our military can't produce one warship or warplane in a decade, let alone a week. As highlighted by Jared Brady in the Spectator magazine, if war broke out tomorrow, our Navy would fight with six old submarines, 
11 regionally inferior major surface combatants, five logistics vessels and 30 helicopters. Our Air Force would fight with 100 fighters, including 25 old Hornets, 25 F-35s not yet delivered by the US, as well as 15 patrol and 30 transport aircraft, including 10 small C-27 Spartans that have been relegated to humanitarian operations. The Army has only 60 tanks, 250 exhausted light armoured vehicles that are slowly being replaced, 460-year-old armoured old carriers scheduled for replacement later this decade, 50 pieces of towed artillery, zero self-propelled guns, and about 20 attack and 50 utility transport helicopters, virtually all of which are defective or otherwise useless, but will only be replaced after 2026. Meanwhile, Admiral Phil Davidson, the former 25th commander of the United States Indo-Pacific Command, predicts war by 2027, and Anthony Albanese's top priority is an Indigenous voice to Parliament. When will we wake up and get serious? China is the only game in town. Anyhow, that's, me, that's it from me tonight. It was great to fill in again for Alan. He'll be back on deck next Monday. And if you missed last night's interview he did with John Howard, please go to ADH TV, uh, go to the app there and re-watch the episode. It's a must-watch interview. Or you can listen to Alan on the podcast. Just search Alan Jones on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Fred Paul will now take you into the next hour. Thanks for watching. Good night.